You're listening to Let's Talk It Through, a podcast about the art and practice of using your voice as a tool for building happier, healthier relationships and deeper self-trust, made especially for folks who wrestle with people-pleasing tendencies. And I'm your host. I'm Michelle. I'm a communication coach for big-hearted, deep thinkers and feelers, and I run things over at The Hardy Fig. Together, we'll explore how to sidestep common communication pitfalls, build confidence in how you show up for tough conversations on your terms, and start creating the kinds of relationships you want and deserve, including your relationship with yourself. Let's get into it. Hello again. I'm so grateful that you keep coming back. I'm having so much fun sharing this podcast with you. If you can hear it in my voice, I am getting over being sick, so hopefully that's not too distracting, but... Um, I just want to jump right in with today's topic. Um, And actually, I realized in last week's episode, you know, it was the start of a new month. It was the first podcast episode in March. And I realized that I hinted at this idea of continuing to explore a new theme each month, but I never actually articulated the theme that I want us to explore for the next few weeks for the rest of March. You know, in February, it was all about balanced relationships, external communication, how to restore some of that balance. In March, what I think is going to be really fun for us to explore is this theme of connecting with self. And you're going to see this a lot more as you continue to hang around these parts because this oscillation between looking at outer communication like we talked about last month and then inner communication and grounding like we're doing this month, you know, in my view, the two really inform each other constantly and in really profound ways, they're actually pretty inextricably linked. So like I said, you're going to kind of notice this pattern long term of we're going to look at outer communication and inner communication and how the two connect and relate to each other. So in the last episode, the first one that was under this theme, this umbrella of connecting with self, we talked about uncovering and connecting with an identity that is deeper and richer and more interesting than simply being nice. And to help us tee up and introduce the topic of this week's episode, I want to share a little story. It's a story that has to do with personality assessments, because personally, I'm a full-blown personality assessment enthusiast, have been for all my life. I imagine you might be one too. Um, And in this case, I'm talking specifically about the Enneagram. So for a long time, the Enneagram sort of threw me. I didn't really connect with it, which I now know in hindsight is because I'd been mislabeled or mischaracterized after I took the free Enneagram assessment. I was initially characterized as a type one, which, by the way, if you're not familiar, The Enneagram is another, you know, like the Myers-Briggs or like some of these other personality quizzes or assessments, the Enneagram consists of nine different types and they're just numbered. So they're types one through nine. Um, And I had been mischaracterized as a type one, which always felt close, but never quite right to me. Um, And feel free if you're not familiar with the Enneagram, there's a whole rabbit hole you could go down. But for the sake of keeping this brief, I'm going to fast forward to when I started working with a coach myself a few years ago. And in one of our first coaching calls, she was really getting to know me. And she asked at one point, mm, are you an Enneagram 9 by chance? And I told her that I hadn't ever really connected with the Enneagram. And when I had taken it, that wasn't the result I got. And she went, you know what? I'm going to encourage you to take the paid version of the assessment. It tends to be more accurate. I'm going to guess you're a type nine, but go ahead and take it and tell me what you get. 
And sure enough, I am a type nine through and through. So thanks, Rachel, (laughs) for making me take that quiz at the time. So then, of course, once I figured out I was a type nine, I got hungry to dig into all things Enneagram and learn everything I could. Because when I'm newly interested in something, by the way, I don't know about you, but I go down full-blown wormholes. So I opened like 27 browser tabs. I started taking furious notes, trying to write as fast as my brain was firing off ideas and making connections and coming up with more questions. And so in getting lost down this Enneagram rabbit hole, I learned about this idea of triads. So basically the Enneagram consists of, like I said, nine different types. And within those nine types, there are three triads and each triad contains three types. So three times three equals nine. Um, And then for each triad, so there are three in total, each triad has one dominant emotion that sort of motivates the actions of those three Enneagram types and influences how they make decisions. So just to run through them really quickly, I'm not an expert, but this is generally what I found. One of those three triads is the heart triad. So that encompasses Enneagram types two, three, and four. Types that fall within the heart triad typically use their emotions to make decisions from like a heart space, and they struggle predominantly with the emotion of shame. So that's the heart triad. Then there's the head triad, which encompasses types five, six, and seven. And the head triad uses, surprise, surprise, their heads, their logic brains to make decisions, and they struggle predominantly with the emotion of fear. And then there's lastly, the gut triad, and that encompasses types one, eight, and nine. And in the gut triad, we typically use our instincts to make decisions, and we're most prone to struggling with the emotion of anger. So as an Enneagram nine, I, like I said, I fall within the gut triad, meaning that the dominant emotion I'm likely to experience and struggle with above all else is anger. And when I read that, I thought, anger? Really? And that kind of came up for me because I don't really identify as an angry person. I don't really see myself as someone who grapples with or experiences a lot of strong anger. But as it turns out, that confusion and that disconnection with the emotion of anger is part of the reason that I fall into that bucket. So I'm going to read you an excerpt from a site called uh, EnneagramGift.com that's going to help explain this. It says, Enneagram type nines are often called the peacemakers because they can work with opposing people to hear and understand each side of the story to resolve the conflict. This role can be difficult and even mentally exhausting. They can feel anger if they do not express their needs in fear of loss and separation. That negativity they face can become so overwhelming and unbearable that they might have a rageful meltdown as it builds up. Now, rageful meltdown is a little extreme, right? But hyperbolic language aside, and whether or not you are an Enneagram 9, the fact that you're here listening to this humble podcast tells me that you might relate to this phenomenon, right? This phenomenon where we can get so focused on trying to dodge or quickly resolve conflict that we never really slow down long enough to really sit and fully deal with the uncomfortable emotions those situations might bring up for us whether that's anger or sadness or despair or frustration, etc. And then, as it turns out, not dealing with that anger or whatever emotion it is that we're talking about doesn't just make it magically go away or cease to exist. Instead, it means those emotions quietly build inside of us. 
And then over time, they catch up to us. We might either reach a breaking point where they boil over or we might shut down completely. But in either scenario, it takes a real toll both on our mental and emotional health and on our relationships when we're not fully feeling and addressing those uncomfortable emotions like anger. So as you might have guessed, we're going to spend some time today talking about how to actually feel our big feelings when they arise instead of denying or fighting them so that they don't add up to something bigger down the road that we try to hold like a pressure cooker inside our bodies. So first, we're going to explore why we resist feeling big feelings like anger and why it's 100% normal and understandable if that feels true for you historically. And then in the second section, as we shift into why it's important to feel our feelings, we'll explore how you can partner with yourself to stay with your feelings and feel them fully using a three-part process or framework to help you experience the fullness of them without fear and without judgment. Also that you can start taking full advantage of their medicine, you can learn from them, and ultimately release them in a way that supports you. So let's get into it. Let's start things off by talking about your current relationship to your feelings and how it might have come to be. So first, it makes a ton of sense that up until now, you may have been putting a lot of effort into managing and containing your big unpleasant feelings over the years. Because most of us have received all kinds of messaging our entire lives about our feelings. We've heard and internalized so many different messages. Things like, feelings are either good or bad. Or that the way to show maturity is to stifle or hide or maybe even not have big emotions at all. You might have heard that feelings are a thing you should be able to control or choose at any given time. And ultimately, you might have heard that it's your job to tame those feelings, especially the big bad ones. And when I say big bad, that's of course in air quotes, but I'm talking about things like anger, sadness, disappointment, grief, frustration. And that last bullet is about control, and it's 100% a direct reflection of so many of the oppressive power structures that we live under, the kinds of structures that really emphasize hierarchy and having power over things and people. So I'm talking about systems like patriarchy, white supremacy, capitalism. And so with that in mind, this idea of power over being really prevalent in our society No wonder we've been trying to master or control our feelings and have power over them all these years. We see that kind of thinking modeled around us all the time. So our goal here is to begin to move away from a place of trying to exercise power over our feelings because that's creating a lot of struggle and odds are it's not been super effective thus far. And instead we can start to explore what it might be like to partner and work with those feelings from a more collaborative, side-by-side sort of approach. By learning to stay and work with your feelings, you can start to shift from a place of trying to control your emotions and instead learn to work with your feelings, seeing them as sources of helpful information, as necessary medicine, as allies, as teachers, and companions through all your lived experience, and learn to fully embrace them without judgment. And learning to shift your relationship with your feelings in this way can also help mitigate the time you spend spiraling in fear or in stories about what those feelings mean about you when you can't control them the way you might like to. 
For many of us, certainly for me, this can be a really big paradigm shift. And before we get too far into this concept and some of the follow-up concepts we're going to explore, I want to credit a wonderful teacher. Her name is Varvara Eroshna. Um, her Instagram handle, in case you don't follow her already, she's at B with Varvara, and that's Barbara, with, but with V's instead of B's. But she did a beautiful job of sharing a lot of this context, plus a variation of the framework that I'll be walking you through in a little bit. She shared this all inside her free workshop called Feelings 101, which is a precursor to her paid program, How to Feel. I've heard nothing but wonderful things about the paid program from those who've taken it, so feel free to go down that road and explore it if that's speaking to you. But we're going to explore some high-level concepts that I learned and have practiced integrating from learning from Varvara because the truth is this. Our feelings aren't for fixing, and they aren't for managing, even the painful ones. And in fact, we make our pain worse when we try to struggle against or overpower those things that we feel. When we do that, we're not only struggling against the inevitable, but we're also missing an opportunity to receive valuable information and medicine. In Varvara's words, let pain be pain without creating more suffering. So in the old system, in the way that we might be used to doing things, when we start to feel a quote-unquote bad or uncomfortable feeling, we often do two things. First, we judge it as bad, and then we try to fix it. The fixing piece might look like pushing the feeling away, stuffing it down, talking ourselves out of it, holding it in, keeping it secret, distracting ourselves, distancing ourselves from it, trying to cheer ourselves up. All that stuff is an effort to make those feelings go away. So going back to Varvara for a second, she describes three common what she calls escape routes or blocks that come up and stop us from being and staying with our feelings. And they all serve us by helping us avoid being hurt. So the three escape routes we often use to avoid feeling our feelings are, first, there's avoidance, which is like running away from the feeling, brushing it under the rug, avoiding feeling it altogether. Then there's projection, which is all about shifting your focus onto external things. This might look like blaming, self-criticism, perfectionism. It usually feels pretty harsh in nature. And then the third escape route is spiraling. This one uh, hits a little too close to home for me. So spiraling is when we retreat into our heads. We might feel overtaken by the feeling, repeating the stories in our minds, ruminating on them, um, experiencing that loop where the feeling gets triggered all over again because we're having that thought loop of the story. Um, it usually creates a sense that this is going to last forever. Um, and these are three escape routes, I'm mostly introducing them here because they're things for us to just be aware of. It might be an opportunity to notice which ones you tend to lean on. There might be one or several that are that are more common for you. But just keep in mind, if one or even a few of these sound familiar, that's totally okay. Remember the analogy of the wise winter coat that we talked about in episode one, which if you haven't listened to episode one, I would suggest going back, but basically we talked about people pleasing, 
through this lens of some of those tactics were wise coping mechanisms that we developed in childhood when we needed them to keep us safe. But in fact, now that we're in a different season of life, now that we're adults and our circumstances and resources have changed, we can see some of the harm or discomfort that that same coat might be causing us now when the weather has figuratively warmed, let's say, Uh, in the current conditions of our life, and we can start to explore some options for safely removing it. Okay, so if we're moving away from trying to manage or escape our feelings, what does that actually look like in practice? We're going to look at some skills and practices that will support you in staying with your feelings and feeling them more fully without falling into judgment or old stories about them, and then moving through them consciously with less fear or shame or resistance. And again, I just want to emphasize that a lot of this section is based on my own personal interpretation and experience using the framework that Varvara Eroshina of Be With shared in her Feelings 101 workshop. So we're going to break this section down into a three-part framework that you can regularly come back to and lean on for support anytime you're feeling a big emotion. So rather than going down one of those three escape routes we just talked about, this is a three-part framework you can try instead. And the framework consists of three elements, and we're going to talk about each one. There's safety, patience, and curiosity. So let's start with part one, which is all about creating safety. In many ways, I think the fact that many of us feel unsafe to fully feel our big emotions is what causes us to want to control and overpower them. And that makes sense, right? We talked about this. But when we can separate ourselves from that feeling of conflict between our head and our heart. So our head is telling us stories about why these feelings are shameful or scary or not allowed. Meanwhile, our heart is telling us what we're feeling. And there's a conflict between those two things, right? When we can interrupt that conflict or take a step back and not see them as in conflict with each other, we can start to see our feelings as part of ourselves. And if our feelings are just part of who we are, there's nothing to fight. We can feel safe to just have our emotional experience, even when it's uncomfortable. Now, how to release that head versus heart conflict mindset and how to find that feeling of safety is a really big and valid question, especially when you don't have a lot of experience relating to your feelings in this way. It can feel really scary to face your feelings and fully experience them without any of that armor that you might be used to. So there's a practice that you can use to help you soften and make the rest of this process of staying with your emotions feel less overwhelming. It's a somatic practice called resourcing, and its job is to help you find and create a feeling of safety in your body, which will allow you to soften and let some of that guard down. Specifically, You'll do this by finding pleasant or neutral sensations in your body and or your environment to help anchor you somewhere that feels safe to hang out for a while so that you feel safe enough to be with your feelings. So here's how resourcing works. First, when you notice a big feeling that's causing your mind to spiral or start kicking up stories and stress, bring your attention back into your body. The focus here is on slowing down. Once you feel present, 
see if you can find somewhere in your body that you can focus on and bring some attention to where you notice a pleasant or even just a neutral sensation. So this might be the way your chair underneath you is supporting you. It might be the soft texture of your sweater against your skin. It might be a neutral feeling in your toes or where your hands are resting on your jeans. Anything that feels neutral and separate from that emotional charge, it's a physical sensation. Once you find that physical sensation that feels safe or neutral, spend some time focusing on that sensation and finding a sense of comfort, security, and or safety in that sensation. And if that feels hard to do, try experimenting with creating pleasant sensations for yourself. So you might experiment with using things like soft blankets, your favorite tea, putting on soothing music, building a pillow fort, embracing solitude, anything that's going to help create feelings of safety or comfort in your environment. You can introduce some of these things. You don't have to just find it organically. So once you're feeling safe and connected to that neutral sensation, try allowing your heart to open and connect to whatever big uncomfortable emotion you're experiencing. You can try naming the emotion in your mind, whether it's anger or sadness or what have you, and notice the physical sensation it creates. You might notice that anger feels like a tightening in your chest or a sadness that feels like a lump in your throat. Whatever it is, focus on dropping your awareness into your physical body, noticing those sensations from a neutral place and staying with them. Then allow the pleasant or neutral sensation to help anchor you and orient you toward the present. Staying focused on the physical sensations you feel can help prevent you from retreating back into your mind where all those old stories and stress tend to live. And if hanging out with the feeling sounds stressful and never-ending, I have good news. This takes us right into the second part of this three-step framework about staying with your feelings. And that second part of the framework is about patience. So specifically, being patient and staying with your feeling for 90 seconds. And here's why 90 seconds. There's some really interesting research from a Harvard-trained scientist named Dr. Jill Bolte-Taylor, which shows that a feeling lasts for just 90 seconds. In other words, if you can wait it out and develop the tools to hang out with your big feelings for a minute and a half, that feeling will fade. It'll change, it'll evolve, or it'll release. Now, if you're thinking, okay, wait, I've definitely had feelings that have lasted for more than a minute and a half, A, you're not wrong, (laughs) and B, you'll find this next point interesting. Dr. Taylor says that if you have anger, let's say, for example, that lasts for more than a minute and a half, that's because you're replaying a story in your mind. And every time that story starts on repeat, you re-trigger the circuit and the response. So in other words, you keep reliving that feeling over and over and over again on a loop. And if that's happened to you, know that it's normal and there are things you can do to help break up that repeating thought loop and find a more productive way through the feeling. In addition to the resourcing exercise we just talked about, you can also use things like slow, deep breathing, like if you're familiar with box breathing, to calm and soothe your nervous system and keep you out of your head where those stories tend to get re-triggered. Whatever you need to do to create those feelings of calm, safety, and awareness in your body without getting pulled back up into your mind, 
The goal here is to stay with the feeling and ride it out for 90 seconds without re-triggering the story or the thought loop. Once you've done that, we're on to part three of the framework, which is about getting curious about what's really going on. So you've slowed down and you've found safety in your body. Then you've stayed with the feeling for 90 seconds. From there, gentle curiosity is what's going to help you get underneath some of those old stories that get kicked up around your big feelings and help you release their charge. When you notice those old mental tapes and stories and judgments starting to play in your mind when a big feeling shows up, take that as your cue to pause and interrupt that judgment with some gentle curiosity. This is also where the first two steps of the framework, the softening into feelings of safety and then finding the patience to ride them out for 90 seconds, will support you. If you start to notice something like anger and you're tempted to turn that into a story about yourself or even about the other person or persons involved, try bringing your awareness back into your body and starting to gently explore some questions. Some questions you might explore are things like, what's the feeling going on underneath all of this? What stories am I telling myself right now about my feelings and how true are those stories? What might be a different story? What might a different belief sound like here? How might this feeling be serving me? What could it be trying to show me or tell me or teach me in this moment? As you use these questions repeatedly over time, you'll start to get used to welcoming the opportunity to see your triggers as your friendly teachers and to start flexing that curiosity muscle around what they might be trying to tell you. Not to mention, some of those old stories will start to lose their charge and their power. So again, it can be really challenging to interrupt old habits of how you're used to responding to big feelings in the moment, whether that's with judgment or fear or stories or just the drive to try to overcome them. It's something I know I'm still working on, and it's a constant exercise in patience, self-compassion, and recommitting to this practice. Repetition is key. And it's going to help you create these new patterns and help them stick neurologically. Just remember to be gentle on yourself throughout that entire process. So we just covered a lot of ground. Let's do a quick recap of what we just went over because it was a lot. So first, we explored why so many of us have such a hard time staying with our big uncomfortable feelings and what it could look like to let go of that power over mentality or that desire to overcome and control our feelings and instead start to partner with them. We also talked about staying with your feelings using that three-part formula of creating safety, being patient for 90 seconds, and then getting curious and investigating what's going on underneath. This is the work of accepting and honoring your own humanity. And there's no better way, in my opinion, to build the kinds of relationships we want that fill us up and feel deeply loving and reciprocal than to learn to love and make space for our own humanity. And you're doing it. You're here doing the work. And as a dear friend of mine said this week, I'm really proud with you for being willing to do that work. Keep at it, even when it gets tough. I promise the payoff is there. And if you do decide to start experimenting with this framework, let me know how it goes. I'd love to hear from you. And even if I don't, I'm cheering you on. See you next week. Thanks for joining me for today's episode. If you're enjoying the show, let the overlords at Apple Podcasts know. 
Seriously though, it goes a really long way if you subscribe and leave a rating and a review. Thanks in advance. If you're looking for even more support around the conversations popping up in your life and relationships, head on over to thehardyfig.com. That's the H-E-A-R-T-Y fig.com. And that's where you'll find an interactive, I like to think of it as a part quiz, part workshop that'll offer you some personalized support based on your particular situation and what's tripping you up about it. The best part, it's 100% introvert friendly and can be done totally on your own time with as many pauses as you need. Most of all, thanks for being here. See you next week.